2: Amy, I got to tell you, after you told me about The Human Algorithm, I am hooked. It is a weekly podcast that answers the question, what to watch on Netflix. And it's actually from real people, like your favorite Netflix stars and employees of the company and the biggest Netflix fans from around the world. Each episode is only 10 minutes long, and it's perfect for just short listening sessions, you know, maybe going to get gas or coming home from, a you know, the gym, something like that. Think of it as a guide to help you decide what to watch tonight on Netflix, but in the voice of a trusted friend, even if you're not friends with, like, Ellen Page or Mary J. Blige. It's a great show to help take the guesswork out of Netflix. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. Today's show is brought to you by Mubi. Mubi is proud to spotlight the powerfully humanist cinema of New York-based Japanese documentarian, Kazuro Soda. Have you... Watch the films of Kazuro Soda? I
1: have not. And now that I know he's on a movie spotlight, I think I need to be checking this out.
2: Well, this is what I love about Movie. Movie takes people and interesting pieces of cinema that you may not be familiar with and gives you an overview. So whenever you go out now, when people are talking about, oh, did you see that in the theater? No, like, no, no, no. I just watched all the films of Kazuo Soda. This four-film special includes the Peabody winning film campaign and the exclusive online premiere of his latest film Inland Sea. Try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com/unspooled. That's mubi.com/unspooled for a whole month of great cinema for free. It's 1961. And there's a podcast for us. It's Unspooled's version of West Side Story. Welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I'm Amy Nicholson. And this is the podcast where we look at a film from the AFI's top 100 films of all time, the 2007 list, to see if they are as good as people say, do they hold up, and how have they influenced the filmmakers of today. I am Paul Shear, a Clippers fan, a team who's going to the playoffs, and I am joined by...
1: Oh, somebody whose team is not going, Amy Nicholson. Yes, oh, the Lakers. Lakers.
2: Now, man. it's interesting, though, because the Clippers do have one of the best franchise players in the NBA of all time. Oh, no, no I'm sorry. That was the Lakers, right? You have LeBron. We, we have a team of rascals and upstarts.
1: We have a team of rascals and upstarts, No, you two, don't. And you just keep getting hurt. Uh, you, oh. got, you got the best in
2: the league, Amy. Well, anyway. Ain't
1: no player got as dreamy of eyes as Brandon Ingram.
2: Well, right now, I mean, we're kind of at war, kind of like the rival gangs of the Sharks and Jets in West Side Story. The Lakers are gonna get
1: you tonight.
2: <laughs> Dear Doc Rivers, River you. Uh, this is a real niche show already. Amy... Um we have so much to talk about today but before we get into that um last week we talked about Night at the Opera and we asked everybody if you could only have one Marx Brothers film on the AFI list what would it be and it was a resounding answer people wanted Duck Soup over Night at the Opera
1: Yep I voted Night at the Opera but I am used to fighting losing battles like my long term goal to get people to say biopic instead of biopic No uh, if you want a hyphen get a hyphen but that's fair Duck Soup I get it. You liked it because you felt like it also had politics involved and it did not have singing. Not having singing seemed to be a very well, big factor.
2: I think you know what it was? It it felt like it was more of a comedy where night of the opera felt more of a a family film and I and I think a lot of people were kind of wrestling with that as well. I just, I think it lost some of the anarchy that duck soup has. And a lot of people called for uh, animal crackers as another one of the favorites that came up a lot. Um, They said that would be a harder discussion, but then there was a bigger discussion going on. And I felt like this was something I wanted to bring up to you. If we didn't have the Marx Brothers in our past, you know, we weren't introduced to it, maybe when we were younger, would we like this fresh you know i don't know how to judge it like that i they were a part of my youth do you think that people could just get into it cold
3: i
1: Wonder about that too. I mean, cuz I feel like we grew up in a world where the knowing about the Marx Brothers seemed pretty important. Right. Cuz George Burns was such a big star when I was a little kid, and so like George Burns was seem, was like this throwback line to right. the Marx Brothers to being like a wise crack and groucher type with a cigar. So I grew up in a world where it felt like even though they stopped making movies way before my time, you had to know about the Marx Brothers. It was right. like learning your history. And I, I don't know if we feel that same pull today, so I wonder. But it's true. I mean, there have been so many people from their period who have sort of fallen off justly or unjustly, you know? Yeah, Laurel and Hardy being one, and I honestly I don't want to get yelled at, but my main memories of the Three Stooges are just playing the old eight bit Nintendo Three Stooges game. Oh
2: God, the worst! The
1: best you got to take the crackers from the clam's mouth before the clams in the soup ate the crackers. I,
2: I do remember that game uh, well. You know, I think in the last episode that we talked about the Marx Brothers Duck Soup, I mentioned brain donors that John Turturro kind of take on the Marx Brothers. You're and always
1: looking for an excuse to bring up Brain Donors. No I right?
2: gotta bring up Brain Donors. That and uh, that and the other classic trio of comedians, the Fat Boys in a movie called uh, Disorderlies. But, I
1: love Disorderlies. I remember Disorderlies. I mean,
2: it's like a Marx Brothers film anyway, but oh. Brain Donors is essentially a, a riff on Night at the Opera, like a, a true kind of lifting of the story. So, you know, uh, I don't feel like I want to rewatch that, but if someone does, I'd love to hear what their point of view is on it. So, Amy, the chunks... That is uh, Jordan Wold on Twitter, writes, I listen to every episode of Unspooled, and I've been a fan of both of you for a long time. Um, I co-host a new show with some comedians where we visit movie theaters in L.A. and review them. What are your favorite theaters? Paul and Amy, this is in L.A. What are your favorite theaters?
1: Ooh, you know, the very first theater that I went to right when I moved here was The Egyptian. Oh, good. It was right by the old LA Weekly office. Mm -hmm. It was just a two-block walk away, and they are doing this huge retrospective of Werner Herzog, and Werner Herzog was going to be there.
3: Oh, wow. So it was,
1: like, amazing. And the Egyptian just kind of set this tone for me. Like, to me, that is my favorite of the old theaters. I love the Chinese. I spend a ton of time at the Chinese. I feel like I'm always at the Chinese. But the Egyptian theater here is so beautiful. They do the weirdest programming. The last time I was there, I got to see The Fly. Oh, wow. It was fantastic. So I have big ups, big ups to me for the Egyptian.
2: I live near the Vista. The Vista is like um, a very Egyptian themed uh, theater as well. It's a beautiful theater. It's a different theater going experience, although they don't ice their waters. I don't understand why. Um, but I do love that theater and they do a bunch of like fun midnight programming there. You'll see like a Ferris Bueller's Day Off or a Gremlins uh, on a midnight on a Friday. But if I was to pick a regular theater, a theater that I would love to go to, I am a huge fan of the iPick theaters. iPick in Pasadena is the best. You uh, sit in a theater that's only about 30, 40 seats. They deliver food. It's a little bit more like a high end Alamo draft house, and you're in these pods. So you can even, if you want, say something to the person that you're with, and no one else will be affected by your talking. Um, Their chairs actually go almost into beds. They give you blankets and a pillow. Uh, And it's a great experience, especially for June and I. We have two children, so date nights are kind of hard to figure out. And we can get dinner and see a movie there, and it feels like we've also had a little bit of a vacation, a little bit of a luxury in there. So I'm a big fan of the iPick for a small, intimate theater experience. How
1: do you not fall asleep?
2: June has never stayed awake for a single film there. Uh, I I just get comfortable. And I really, I think what I do is enjoy being able to stretch out and not feel crammed in. Because I, I think, you know, going to see popular films, you, you're you just, you want to be there opening night, you want to get a good seat. And there's only a handful of like really good seats. So I I like the idea of like being in my own cocoon that has space. So I just feel like I can, I feel like I'm at home and I'm fully, I'm almost more attentive because- I don't feel like I have to worry about anyone around me.
1: Oh, I like that. Where yeah. do you sit in a normal
2: theater? You know, when I go see films by myself, like when I saw Captain Marvel, uh, I sat dead center mid, mid dead center. It's like, my, you know, very classic. But then when I go see films um, and I that section is taken, upper left. Wow. Top, as high as I can go.
1: Huh, I mean Dead Center I, in middle is like my nightmare. Cause I'm really? like, if I had to go do anything, I'm just stuck, like with all these people right. surrounding me. I feel very trapped. I like that second row. You know how there's like the seats where there's the the bars kind mm-hmm. of mix them? Yeah. I like sitting behind a bar so I can put my feet up.
2: Oh, I mean, yeah. The bar is is kind of the sweetest spot. And I mean, you're right. If it's crowded, I'm doing an aisle every single time. I always aisle, but I have now become a afternoon moviegoer and I love being in there, there's no one in the theater. You could do whatever you want. It feels like I'm a, a kid. Like, my parents have dropped me off at the mall, and I'm like, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> All right, Amy, um, I want to see if the people who listen to Unspooled are good singers. And last week, we threw down the gauntlet. We said, can you sing some of America from West Side Story, the movie we we're going to be talking about today? And you delivered. I mean, this is impressive. Check this out.
0: Puerto Rico. My
3: heart's devotion. Let
0: it sink back in the
4: ocean now. Always the hurricanes
0: blowing.
3: Always the population growing.
0: I like the island Manhattan. Smoke on your pipe and put that in. I like to be in America. Okay, buy me in America.
4: Everything free in America. For espanci in America.
2: What do you think?
1: I mean, I love it. I love all types of singers because I think if you just have the courage to sing, you automatically win.
2: Uh, 100%. That is the karaoke rule. Steven Spielberg, I hope you were listening because there's a bunch of great talent that just sang here today. But Amy... Let's get into it. The year is 1961. A dozen eggs cost 30 cents. Yuri Gagarin becomes the first human in space. South Africa becomes an independent republic. And the first Six Flags theme park opens in Arlington, Texas. Pampers were introduced as the first disposable diaper. George Clooney and Barack Obama were born. And most importantly, West Side Story came out. Ranking 41 on the 1997 AFI list, and then ranking number 51 on 2007's AFI list.
1: You're telling me we didn't have disposable diapers until there was a man in space?
2: <laughs> yes. Wow. I mean, I would look at it differently. I was like, we didn't have disposable diapers until Six Flags opened a kick-ass <laughs> theme park because people were shitting their pants on those roller coasters. <laughs> they needed those disposable diapers. No, man, the diaper game is is very real, and people who – look – I appreciate what you're doing for the environment. You are champions if you're using, like, organic real diapers and a service comes and they take it away from you. You know about that, right? No,
1: I don't have to know about that. No,
2: well, there's a service. You can get, like, cloth diapers and you got to clean out the stuff and you can put it in a bag and they come. And thank God for them.
1: Thank God for them. I mean, I have a shirt with Yuri on it that I bought in Kiev because he is Ukrainian and they take a lot of pride in that. Uh, But I guess I should swap it out for diaper guy. Or diaper diaper lady. Mr.
2: Pamper. Patty Pampers. (laughs) Patty Pampers. Uh,
1: Hi, let's talk about West Side Story.
2: Yes, who's in
1: it? What it's about? West Side Story. It is Romeo and Juliet transplanted to the west side of Manhattan. You have Natalie Wood as Maria. She is a member of the family known as the Sharks. The Sharks are a Puerto Rican gang. She falls in love with Tony. He is an ex-ish sort of adjacent member of the Jets, and uh, they fall in love. And as you know, in Romeo and Juliet, this does not end well.
2: Well, you know, it's funny you say that because this is the first time I've ever seen West Side Story uh, on screen or in the theater. That's amazing. Never have seen this film. And I think, you know, I had a lot of preconceived notions. I actually wrote down what I thought it was about before I watched it because I had an idea. And I just wrote down, Romeo and Juliet, but no one dies. And I was wrong. (laughs) Um, I don't know why I avoided this movie. I think I avoided it because... Whenever I've seen still images, it looked like all the things I don't respond to well. It looked like very stagey, very fakey. And I mean, what a mistake I made because, spoiler alert, Uh, I went into this movie kind of like West side story and then have left it going. I think this is the greatest musical ever made. And this version of it is maybe one of the best musicals I've ever seen on screen.
1: This is major because we've already talked about singing in the rain.
2: Yes. I think that singing in the rain is fantastic. And it's such a great, fun musical that I think is really rewatchable. But this accomplishes something that I feel like musicals often don't do. Don't come at me, Twitter. But. I feel like the drama, the detail, what it's talking about, the way that the music is executed, the way that the dance kind of comes alive, it's, it is is a more comprehensive piece. Like, if you're looking at both of them, I think Singing in the Rain is fun, it's splashy, it's everything that I love about a musical. I love musicals, and when I saw this, it's like, wow, you could do so much, and they were doing this. In the 60s, it's commenting on society. It's doing these like different musical choices. And, you know, yes, it has a simple plot. I was going to say, this is essentially for you, like Titanic without the boat.
1: (laughs) And a lot more people don't die.
2: A lot more people don't die, yeah.
1: Uh, well, but you, did you, how do you manage to be a complete West Side virgin? Because I remember even before I saw this movie, knowing the I Feel Pretty song, I think from Saturday Night Live, I feel like there was a skit where the Bride of Frankenstein comes to life. It might be Gilda Radner. Right. And she starts to sing the song. And that was my first sort of gateway.
2: Well, I think what blew me away about this movie was I knew all the songs (laughs) did not realize that they were all from this. And I was like, wait, every one of these songs I know, I mean, this is a, a hit factory of songs. I mean, it cause I think when you think of like old musicals, you know, you think of like, I don't know, like my fair lady or Oklahoma, which have like some great numbers in them, but it's not from beginning to end kind of rich and full. And, and also they seem a little bit sappy. And this is, I think, just so full and and visually stunning. I mean, from a directing standpoint, from a musical standpoint, from a dance standpoint, it really kind of blew me away.
1: Ah, I mean, I will say that when this movie, or even before this, when this play came out on Broadway, it was sort of seen as the anti-My Fair Lady. It was seen as like, here we have all these gigantic, technicolor, beautiful musicals that are sort of fantasy, like step into this world, get away from living in late 1950s America and then West Side Story was like, no, really be in it. The way that we keep thinking is brand new whenever somebody else does it. We're right. like, rent. Oh my god, this is a brand new thing. Right. But this was like The Rent of 1957, I think
2: the year was. Whenever you see this kind of movement forward in Broadway, it's always because someone's subverting the genre. I mean, you could look at Hamilton and 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 the impact that caused. I think so many people went and are still going to see theater because they revolutionized it. Book of Mormon did it in a in a comedy way. They kept a lot of the Broadway tropes, but they pushed the material out in a very big way. And I think it's, you know, it's kind of filthy Book of Mormon, but it's also very accessible. and it's I love Book of Mormon. I do too. Uh, You know, it's interesting. Sondheim wanted West Side Story to be the first musical with curses, you know? So at that song with Dear Officer Krupke, it was going to be like, Dear Officer Krupke, fuck you. And then I think there's a line like where the Jets are singing a song. It's like they spit in your face and it was supposed to be like, you know, they shit in your face. But they realized they couldn't release the album across state lines with profanity in it. So they pulled back from that and kept it a clean version.
1: Whoa. And even in the movie, you see such intense cleanness. I mean, these dudes almost come to blows because somebody tags sharks stink. Like, stink. Oh, yeah.
2: How dare you? It's a real tough juxtaposition that they're going for in the movie. And I think that was why I was a little bit hesitant as it first started. Because, you know, you're seeing New York City, real New York City. And you're focusing on this gang and they're supposed to be intimidating, but, you know, they're doing that like snap thing. And then they go into essentially ballet, you know, and it's a juxtaposition of images that I think is hard to kind of make. Am I afraid of them?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of pirouette battles in here. I yes.
2: pirouetted you. I pirouetted you. But then it all kind of comes together. And then that scene, not to jump fully ahead, but, you know, they do a rape scene through like dance. And you're like, and it has weight, but it takes you a second, kind of like watching Shakespeare to adjust your point of view to it. Cause it at first, or if you're just looking at it in a very passing glance, it seems comical. It, it, it just seems like that's not worth my time or energy. And that's why I think I avoided this movie for so long.
1: Yeah. And that's exactly why I love musicals is they say like, meet us here. You're going to meet us at this point. And you know, if you're going to come in on this couch and just be, like, eating your popcorn and rolling your eyes like, oh, real gang members don't pirouette at each other. Right. You're never going to enjoy the movie. So I like that they just sort of set a tone right away. Yeah. But, it, but to, I mean, to kind of what you're saying is, you know, in the modern era when we have violence, you know, less violence than we might hear about on the news, but violence, mm-hmm. this idea of a film where, like, the gang members are like, oh, no, one person has a knife. It's, like, you know. Right. We also have to meet it like kind of in the past, too, in the idea that these guys were considered really dangerous and that dudes with little ducktails who look like, you know, the old men in my neighborhood when I was a kid. Right. Like charming, sweet and quaint were scary. You know, or, or at least we're supposed to be slightly scary. And so I guess we should talk about the history of this a little bit, you know, because when West Side Story was created, well, it was actually going to be called East Side Story.
4: Mm, Did you know about this?
1: I did not know that. Yeah, you should maybe jump in here a bit because, like, I'm not a New York person. You're a New York person. The very first idea of what this story could be when, like, Leonard Bernstein and Jerome Robbins and everybody were coming up with it, you know, Leonard Bernstein doing the music, Jerome Robbins doing the dancing, the choreography, was that it would be about Catholics and Jewish people on the east side of New York.
2: Interesting. I knew that the original idea was the Catholics and Jewish people. And I thought that was interesting how it kind of morphed into Puerto Ricans. And, I mean— like, they kind of say, like, Polish, it's a weird, you know, it's like, it's basically white versus Puerto Rican. I mean, that that's really what it comes out of. And I heard that that was really based on the, the violence that was going on in Los Angeles at the time. This is in 1955. They, like, so they kind of took what was going on in Los Angeles and moved it to New York.
1: Exactly. It's like they wanted it to be this New York story, then they couldn't figure out what direction to take it in. And then while they were hanging out in Los Angeles, riots were happening and they thought, well, maybe we should do it here. And I think it was Leonard Bernstein, maybe, or Drum, who said, I don't know anything about LA. We got to do this back in New York. And so they transplanted it back again.
2: Yeah, New York is so much better for, you know, this movie definitely has parallels to Romeo and Juliet. And I want to talk about adaptation a little bit later, but I thought what was so smart is keeping that idea of, two kind of separate classes of people. And in New York City, you can see it. It's a city that's literally broken up, you know, Chinatown and Little Italy and, you know, Wall Street. There's just sections that can allow you, I mean, we all know the Warriors did it best, uh, you know that have different people kind of warring against each other, and I thought that was a great backdrop for it. I can't even imagine what the 1960 Los Angeles looks like that would have any. Yeah, we're kind gonna of get
1: in our cars and drive over to start trouble with this other neighborhood over there. We're gonna be stuck in traffic about <laughs> yeah. it. I mean,
2: you get need- me to Anaheim. <laughs> Let me fight those Anaheim Angels.
1: Yeah, I mean, you need, I think, a crowded space. You need people to be like elbowing and 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 not have room for people to. Serve. Survive. And also, you know, you could never have like a fire escape scene in Los Angeles. I've only ever lived in one building with a fire escape my whole time here. I've been here forever.
2: Yeah. I mean, what do you think about the original title of this movie? It was, oh, sorry. What do you think the original title of West Side Story? It was called Gangway. No. Terrible. That sounds
1: like a muse. Oh it, Well, this is a musical, but it sounds like the kind of musical where like Frank Sinatra comes down from, you know, yeah. the gangway of a ship. And he's like, it's another Sailor's Leave movie. Let's all dance about it. <laughs> but
2: if you had a bunch of gang members on it, it's like gangway. It would just, I mean, it would just really oh, it'd be really bad. But that you're right about the fire escape because that image is so synonymous with Uh, the musical, and with the movie. As a matter of fact, it's even on our unspooled poster representing West Side Story. We have a a little fire escape. And... There's something so cinematic and very Romeo and Juliet with it. I mean, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's very minimalist, too, all those lines. I mean, it kind of is like the opening shot of this film. It's You have this—it's been a minute since we had an overture. Yo, yes. buddy, like give me a fist bump for overtures. Oh, gosh, love oh, it. Oh, we got an overture again. You
2: got an overture, and then you go into another overture where it's just like music over New York City, you know, 1960s yeah. New York City. And I just kind of love looking at that.
1: In that first overture where it's just, you know— the lines almost look like an old dot matrix printer Mm. and it turns into the shape of New York is super cool. Yeah. It's not that long of an overture either. It's sort of like just long enough to really get you in the zone. I don't think we're like in Ben-Hur, like really sit down and shut up territory.
2: Yeah. It's interesting. All the stylistic choices that are made because in many respects, it seems to be on the cutting edge of, you know, cinematography and color and, you know, it's doing all these different things, but at the same time, it's doing something sort of so basic, you know, with ballet and opera voices and very big kind of performances. It, it's the whole movie is really, you know, I know I'm talking about it at the beginning, but it's all about juxtaposition. It's you're kind of mixing and matching styles, even the singing styles. The gang of the jets kind of sing in a more you know, uh doo style. And then, you yeah, know. Yeah, a little
1: more like not staccato, but like da, da 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 Yeah.
2: And then the Sharks, you know, definitely embrace more of a, a Latin America kind of, you know, energy and, and music influence.
1: Yeah. I mean, let's start with just even like the sound of the tone. Because I cut a little bit out of that opening echo. Because mm-hmm. we go from this song of just this medley of being like, oh yeah, we know every single song in this musical. It's like all, it's all the hits. It's all the bangers. Yeah. To this kind of creepy Almost like you're at the beginning of a Western, right? You just feel like these echoes in the streets. It's like, where's the sheriff going to come out at? And you hear this kind of fascinating, simple instrumentation and whistles. Let's take a listen. You cut to the game member snapping. I never really thought about this until right this second, but there's almost a touch of 2001. I could almost imagine a world where Kubrick heard that swell of music and he was like, I want
2: a little bit of that. Well, what you said about the Western really just resonated with me because this film has a lot of same ideas. You know, it's sort of like this rumble is going to happen. This, You know, the good guys and the bad guys, although it's a little bit unclear about who's who, because depending on what side you're on, um, but it definitely has these stakes uh, that are laid out And by the way This opening scene uh, Where the kid gets his uh, basketball stolen away That uh, is the father of Kiernan and Macaulay Culkin What? Yeah, just a little fun little fact No there. way,
1: I actually cut the, the little bits of line of dialogue Because what you hear when they're having the basketball scene Yeah you, I always believe it Like the very first thing you hear Has so much to do with the rest of the movie Yeah Often And what he's saying is basically Kind of like the end of the movie Here, take a listen
3: Watch his shot yeah. there. Shoot man,
1: go! I'm reaching a bit. I'm reaching a bit, but he's talking about shooting, and this is a movie that ends with shooting. And I'm always like, okay, <laughs> there we go. There I we go. was
2: still waiting for it. Uh, I, <laughs> I uh, <laughs> yes,
1: I'm like, I like to read into things too much.
2: No, but I love that. And you know, this opening moment here, talking about the music, it does subvert your expectations. It, you know, musicals. I feel like often open in a swell. And this kind of opens in a downward motion, if that makes sense. It's sort of like the music gets ominous. It doesn't go up, you know. And a lot of musicals, in my opinion, you know, they were introducing this world. And the world here they're introducing you to is a dangerous world.
1: Yeah, that horn that you're picking up on, that like dangerous sound, that is actually this literally horned instrument. It's called the shofar
2: Oh, wow, yeah It's a
1: tradition oh you, oh, you know about the shofar I don't know that much about it I was just reading about it right now I was like, oh, interesting Now I'm going to talk about a shofar Well, like please I know talk it
2: about it. it I don't know much about it I just know that the shofar is an instrument That it was like used in Jewish ceremonies
1: It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's kind of cool here I, I took a clip of somebody being like Let me show you how to play a shofar Because I was like This instrument is interesting And it was really the basis For so much of that kind of minor key bombast But like a sour bombast That's a little bit scary <laughs>
3: master the art of coaxing music from a shofar or ram's horn an instrument played on certain jewish holy days you will need a shofar Practice. Step one. Moisten your lips and position the mouthpiece at the right corner of your lips. With your lips tightly pursed, vibrate them in the same way you would to blow a well, raspberry. Amy,
2: I could watch this nonstop. I I love that in the how-to video for how to play a shofar, number one thing you need, shofar.
3: <laughs> Um, But it is
1: a literal horn. You've got to see a look about it now. That is an actual horn. It's an actual curving thing. It looks like you ripped it off of a ram. It is a primitive, fascinating instrument. I mean, I think they do a really smart thing here with the direction of it, you know, like Robert Wise in particular and Jerome with the dancing, where instead of just instantly, instantly being like, and now we're all dancing, when you look at this group of Jets... They're starting a little bit slow. It's sort of scattered dance routines. Like yeah. one person jumps off and is like, da-da-da. And another person does a weird individual thing. And he takes a beat before he lets them move in total unison. And I think that's sort of his way of easing you into the idea that these guys are going to be a troupe of dancers.
2: Let's take a break in the show right now just to hear a word from our sponsors. And I want to remind you, Amy, if you're having trouble figuring out what to watch on Netflix, there is a podcast for that. It's called The Human Algorithm. It's a weekly podcast that answers what should I be watching, but it's done from your favorite Netflix stars, people who actually work at the company, and the biggest Netflix fans around. Imagine, who's telling you what to watch on Netflix? Oh, I don't know, Mary J. Blige? Or how about Ellen Page? I want to listen to them. They smart.
1: I want to judge what they say, honestly. I'm <laughs> I'm in this for the shot and food. Like Mary J. Blige, do you really watch that much Cake Boss? Okay.
2: Do you think that like me Ellen, Ellen Page is only like watch Umbrella Academy? And like, Ellen, we know you're <laughs> on it. Anyway, subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. Oh, also, Amy, you know, if you like Unspooled, which I think you do because you're on it as one of the hosts, and, and so am I, you might want to check out podswag.com, where you can actually pick up a exclusive Unspooled poster with your own Zoe Decahedron. It's amazing, and they're priced to move. The poster is beautifully designed by Scott C, and I think any fan of the show will love this poster. Check it out. It's really, really cool.
1: Hey, Paul, it is time to talk about a thing that I love very much. What? A remote control! A mighty remote control! The mightiest Kavo
2: Kavo A voice that echoes from the deep, the remote to save your life. Kavo. If Lord of the Rings was written today by J.R.R. Tolkien. It would be called Lord of the Cavo because this is the universal remote that does it all. Amy, I got to tell you, it's so easy to work this remote. You talk into it; it does like, everything you want.
1: Hey, Cavo, get me Lord of the Rings.
2: They will do it. You can just set up as easy. You plug it into your streamer, your sound system, cable, or satellite, and even your game console. And then Console Center does the rest. It's a smart, automated thing. It's so so easy. Say the name of whatever you want to watch.
1: It listens to you. It listens to you when my cat doesn't listen to me.
2: Finally, someone's listening to us, all right? Just say a movie, a TV show, an actor, even a specific episode of your favorite TV show and Control Center will put it all up on your options and it even finds stuff on YouTube. It's
1: amazing. Kavo, find me cat videos that will make my cat love me.
2: I tell you, my kid right now is into skateboarding and forts and if I could just in the morning when I'm up at 6.45 or 6 a.m. and I just would say into my Kavo like, Fort Building, YouTube. If that came up, my life is so much easier. Shop now, get 40% off your control center with the promo code UNSPOOLED. That's 40% off your control center with the promo code UNSPOOLED. That's $59.95 for 40% off the regular pricing of $99.95. Control Center is available at cavo, C-A-A-V-O.com and Best Buy, Control Center by Cavo. One remote that does it all. The dancing in this film is really unbelievable. And I think what we've been used to seeing when we talk about things on this podcast is you see a great dancer surrounded by pretty good dancers. This is so many dancers, all in beautiful tandem choreography. When you look at stills of this movie, it is like looking at a painting. And um, that to me was even more impressive than going back to your original question about singing in the rain. Yes, yes. Gene Kelly is amazing, you know, but when you look at like 12 people all on the same screen, no cuts doing these acrobatics and ballet and dancing, it it's just undeniable. I mean, everyone's doing an amazing job. As a matter I mean, of fact, it's almost the inverse, honestly, like, yeah. I think
1: like the leads are the weaker dancers out of everybody. Yes. Yeah.
2: I mean, Russ Tamblyn was told by Gene Kelly at the premiere of the film that he thought his dancing was amazing really yeah and I feel like Jim Kelly's not one to throw around a compliment like that wow I I'll, mean yeah
1: as somebody who first ever saw like Russ Hamblin as Dr Jacoby in Twin Peaks mm-hmm. the idea that he got a dance compliment when he was young I, I never put these two men together as the same man right you know for a very long time they're two by the way, that David Lynch must have loved this movie because he cast two of the people from West Side Story in Twin Peaks, that he not only cast, like, Russ Tamblin, but that he also cast the lead, Richard Bamer, as, like, Audrey Horn's dad. I love the idea of David Lynch loving this movie.
2: Well, I think this movie is beloved by so many people, and it's still timeless. What we're talking about here and what you were talking about in the beginning was this idea of culture clash. I mean, right now, we couldn't be in more of a state where— there is a fear of the other. There is uh, this nature to destroy the other. And yet we are all living in the same world and watching it. And I don't know if it's because of the events of the last, you know, whatever, our, the last two you could years. Say the
1: last. Oh, I was going to say you could say the last week, but every week there's something.
2: It just really connected to me because it's a smaller story, but it's speaking to this larger issue, you know, and and, and love and trumps all because these two people— connect. You know, they connect because they're actually looking past and, you know, it's a whatever. It's a very simple idea, but it's a good idea to see. It's a nice idea to see because it is dealing with a subject that hasn't gone away. I mean, Oklahoma and not to keep on like bashing Oklahoma. Yeah, I'm, get,
1: well, I'm getting a little touchy here as this person. Look, I love University it. Anything, all right, let's Go say on.
2: anything goes, <laughs> you know, my fair you lady. You
1: cats, but you're going to probably love cats when cats comes out. No. Wow.
2: Uh, but, you know, I, I think that those topics just Feel like they're a little bit more rare, you know. If you look at like the best movie musicals, I think people are talking about Grease. You know, there's no real big thing Ugh. going on. I love Grease. Grease is fine. <laughs> I'm not you know, a
1: Grease person.
2: Sound of Music, yes, they kind of deal with World War II and Nazis, but not to an extent that's overtly. It's not a. It's not a movie about you know uh, concentration camps. You know, it, it, it's 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 light. It's light. Uh, it's you know very much Mary Poppins esque. And then Mary Poppins, another one. You know these. You know, Wizard of Oz. These are movies that don't really deal with anything, you know. And this movie, I feel like watching it now, it's like, oh, it feels just as important as it probably felt when they were making it in the 60s, you know, representing what was going on in our culture.
1: I mean, I would say, I mm-hmm. would say that it doesn't deal with it incredibly deeply, to be honest, to be to be legit, to be right. legit. You but know? in
2: 1960 for a big... Budget movie, don't you think that that gets a little bit of cred for that?
1: To attempt, absolutely. You know, and to give, you know, to me, like, the standout person in this film is, like, hands down 8 million times over 100% Rita Moreno as Anita. To give, like, to let Rita Moreno, to give her this role that lets her be the first Puerto Rican woman to win the Best Supporting Actress Oscar, hell fucking yes, to, like, a million times. And because of it, because of that relevance... I totally get why Steven Spielberg is remaking it again. And I'm now loving this, like, that we are having this slow motion conversation of putting into context all of his fight against Netflix because maybe he's like, this is my goddamn next Oscar. But yeah, I mean, it's not really super, super deep, I think.
2: I, I respect what you're saying, but I also feel like based on the time when you can't even use cursing, you can't show anything, to take a musical to tackle an issue. And even if the The end result is love conquers all, or you know, just you know, in the immortal words of Peter Farrelly, just talk to each other, you know. And and I agree. Like, I don't think this movie is green booking it, but I do think it's interesting that they're show because it's not at the end of the, the end of this movie. Spoiler alert! It doesn't work out. It's not like hey, you're cool, we're cool, let's go off and live. No, this is going to continue. This is not you know. This is a a day in the life. I agree with you. It's not. Going into it, I know Spielberg wants to uncover more of that. I was reading an article with Tony Kushner. He's like, you know, we really want to explore what was going on culturally in the 1950s when we do it. They're going to do a much more closer adaptation to the stage version, not a remake of this film, which is very different.
1: Yeah, I mean, the idea of giving Tony Kushner from Angels in America like a lot of trust. I like that a lot.
2: I do, too. And I think if this is a first step and this movie is winning and letting people, even though, and I know we get into this all the time majority of the actors here are not Puerto Rican. They're wearing makeup on their face. Rita Moreno has to wear makeup to match the makeup. Oh you know, God. she's basically saying like, but I am, I, I am this. And they're like, no, 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 you need to wear more because, yeah, you know. And all the
1: white guys have a shade of blonde that does not exist.
2: Absolutely not. Yeah, I just want to talk one second about Rita Moreno. You said, you know, you what you love about this is that she won the Academy Award. And you would think that after winning the Academy Award, she goes off to work in Hollywood you know, for a long, long time. She steals this movie. Take a listen to this.
3: I didn't do a film for seven years after West Side Story. I won an Oscar, and I won the Golden Globe, and uh, no movie for seven years. I finally went to audition. I was desperate for a uh, featured role in a a movie seven years later, and I went into the uh, director's office, and he was surrounded by his minions, and uh, it's my favorite show business story, and I said to him, and I worked real hard on the script, and... I said, I can't wait. I had the script, the scene in my hand, said, I can't wait to do the scene for you because I think I have a real handle on it, and I've worked really hard on it, and he looks at the script and there's this awkward silence, and he says, he was English, he says, oh, no, darling, no, he says, "Uh, this isn't the role we wanted you to read for. (laughs) What we brought you in for was to read for the... Mexican Whorehouse Madam.
1: Oh my God. Isn't
2: that crazy?
1: That is insane. Because I don't know how you could watch West Side Story and not be like, Rita Moreno is A, the MVP, and B, the most vivacious, amazing, creative, fantastic performer in the world. I mean, I know that she was a little bit mad that she felt like her Anita, her accent had to be exaggerated. She felt like she was a bit of a stereotype, but she just. Owned this movie, and here's where I'm going to come out with like the point two of our Sergers episode. I still don't like Natalie Wood, and I think she's terrible in this movie. And I oh my was... god, if Natalie Wood was replaced by Rita Moreno. Yes. Even if Rita Moreno is too old, I don't care. This movie would be like not only a, the one of the great movies, it will be the best movie.
2: Um, I don't disagree that Rita Moreno could have done Maria, but I changed my opinion on Natalie Wood a little bit. How? I thought that. She captured something that had a little bit more energy. Look, our two leads are boring. I mean, ultimately, they're not the most exciting leads. You know, you're you're more connected to the other characters.
1: Yeah, Anita uh, and Bernardo. Yes, like exactly. Boyfriend. They're fantastic.
2: And you know, and I and I will also say that I liked uh, Riff. You know, yeah. uh, you know, there there are fun characters here, and I think
1: Riff's girlfriend. Even I like yes, her. She's I- sassy as hell. Can we hear a little bit of Riff's girlfriend? I would just, I just, I just. Just to enjoy the pleasure of hearing Graziella talk.
3: An American tragedy. Pow! Oh, poo. Oobly poo. <laughs>
4: and look, when uh, your sharks come, you chicks cut out, huh? Eh?
3: We might, and then again, we might not.
4: Mm-hmm. This ain't kid stuff,
2: Graziella. Mm,
3: I and Velma ain't kid stuff, neither. Are we, Vel? No, thank you. Ooh. Oobly ooh. And you can punctuate it. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Uh, what are we pooping around with dumb broads?
1: <laughs> I love them. A movie where oh. there was more Velma and Graziella, signed me up. I guess I mean, that movie you is called that? Greece. but I don't like Greece. What am <laughs> I going to
2: do? Wait, what, you want like a Rosencrantz and Stern are dead with uh, Velma and Graciela. Yeah,
1: I want a Velma and Graziella just watch Graziella's boyfriend die, and now they're going to like go clean up the town.
2: I love it. Uh, you know what? I did love the language in this movie. There's, I just wrote down like, enough of your flabba jabba. Uh, I love whenever a movie just embraces that kind of, I don't even know if flabba jabba was something that people were saying in the late fifties, early sixties, but, uh, I would like to bring it back. And I would hope that any comment that you make about this podcast, you hashtag flabba jabba, uh, cause it's just you talking.
1: I mean, yeah, I mean, I don't know if I would like totally defend on Leonard Bernstein to be the coolest of cool, but Stephen Sondheim wasn't in his twenties when he wrote this. I don't think he was hanging out with the coolest people either, but maybe he knew some flabba jabba types. Do you want to keep defending Natalie Wood? You, you can, you can. But so before you no, do, can I, I just play G- Natalie Wood's accent? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay.
3: Por favor, Anita. You are my friend. Stop it, Maria. You must make the neck lower. And you must stop heckling me. We are working on our time now, not the old ladies. One inch. How much can one little inch do?
2: Okay. Okay. I know, I know, you know, Amy, that you don't like her, but you have to appreciate the work that she did. And to play another Natalie Wood clip, I would like to play for you, her actual voice. For those of you who don't know, pretty much every actor in this film was dubbed, except for George Shakires, who plays...
1: Bernardo, with a handsome, handsome dimple man.
2: Yeah, so everyone was kind of replaced. They actually is this woman... Marnie Nixon. Now, Marnie Nixon is somebody at the studio hired. They paid her $300 a day. They would tell her on the day that they would need her to come in. She's not even paid royalties for singing on this. Uh, But yet, she is the voice of Natalie Wood. Everything you know of West Side Story and those songs is Marnie Nixon. And I want you to just uh, hear though, how good Natalie Wood can be next to Marnie Nixon. So first, this is Marnie's voice. (laughs) Now, this is Natalie Wood's voice.
3: In my
0: words and in everything I do, nothing else but you.
2: It's pretty good. I mean, she did an amazing job. They, you know, didn't use her voice, you know, but she's singing in an almost operatic style. And you have to kind of commend someone who is not known as a singer to get to a point where it's pretty indecipherable when you watch this clip back and forth between the two voices.
1: Okay, I will give you this. I actually prefer Natalie Wood in that comparison, and I will say why. Because I think Marnie Nixon is too good, to be honest. I mean, Marnie Nixon is an incredible singer. I mean, this is a woman who had a four-octave singing range. She is impeccable, and I almost feel like that voice is... Too good for a 16-year-old. You know, when it comes in and it's like, it's me, Maria. I'm like, that girl doesn't sound like that. That is not who this girl is. Well, I mean, yeah, this we're at, a teenager.
2: Well, I mean, well, let's use the word teenager lightly. I mean, this movie is taking a lot of liberties with the ages. I mean, at a certain point, uh, some of our teenagers look like they're contemporaries with some of the adults in the film. I mean, especially Bernardo. I'm like, you in high school, bro? I don't buy that for a second. Uh, I mean,
1: that is fair. Actually, you know what? Maybe this is a moment to take a listen to. The new Maria Oh The new Maria The new Maria She is an actual teenager In the Spielberg movie I appreciate that he cast a teenager Her name is Rachel Zegler And this is her singing a song That I think we all know pretty well
0: ha <laughs>
2: Almost as good as me. <laughs> I mean, she is fantastic. Well, let's talk a little bit about the performances here. I know we touched upon that we the leads were a little bit weak. I mean, Audrey Hepburn was up for Maria. Uh, originally, Robert Wise wanted Elvis Presley to play Tony. I like that choice. I, you know, there is something interesting about Elvis. I think he would have brought an energy and a swagger to it. And he fe- it feels- A sex appeal. Yes, it feels like an Elvis movie, doesn't it? You know, it would have been weird, though, to have Elvis die at the end. But I actually think if Elvis did this oh, part...
1: I've feel i always lived in a world where Elvis is dead, so it makes sense. <laughs> I
2: mean, I love Elvis. I love Elvis. It would have been a really great choice. I mean, I, I think this whole film went through so many iterations, you know, I, like, who should be these parts? And they kind of went with you know, an unknown to play Tony. It wasn't somebody like, you know, Tab Hunter was, you know, in the running at a certain point. You know, a lot of bigger people. Um,
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, like, Elvis would have been great if I can be real. Like, if Elvis had been in this movie and Elvis had gotten to, like, be really good, Mm -hmm. it almost would have put Elvis, I think, on a different career path. Yes. And doing, like, these Hawaiian movies. I would have loved to see the Elvis that could have existed if Elvis had actually gotten, like, Overall, role that could have shown maybe what he was capable of. I don't know if Elvis was capable of it, but I think he could be at least as good as Richard Boehmer.
2: Oh, I, I mean, think so too. I mean, right? I, I don't think it's about acting. I, I mean, you know, it may have been one of those things like, you know, like Will Smith turning down Django. You know, it's like, this is not in my... Scope of my career It's sort of like I don't want people To see me like that I'm not doing that
1: Yeah I think like Colonel Parker made him Turn it down Because he had to carry A switchblade And he was like You're already like The dangerous guy With the hips We can't have you Carry a knife
2: Really? Didn't he have a knife In Jailhouse Rock? Did he? I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing. A movie I haven't seen, but i mean, but I've you're seen in enough.
1: jail. They took away your weapon. You Shivs, you Amy. Shivs. Okay, shiv. We've okay. seen Shawshank. Shiv's we know House what goes Rock. on there. Um, well, I, I saw Shawshank, and all I saw is that people are really, really, really sweet to each other.
2: <laughs> Opera. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Ansel Egort coming in. Again, we're making uh, some assumptions on a movie that has yet to be made or is being made as we speak.
1: And that I'm anticipating with cross-ed fingers. Yes. I don't know.
2: I was kind of seeing the comparisons between Baby Driver and... And West Side Story, you know, there is an energy to his performance, Ansel's performance in Baby Driver, that has sort of a, a nod to West Side Story, the way he walks down the street. It, you know, it, it's, it's a very choreographed film. And when I saw that he was cast in this, I was like, oh, that's interesting. It, you know, it, it feels like he's kind of dancing around this.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think he's good at doing heightened. And I think he's got... Sex appeal, and it, it feels so awkward when you're trying to talk, like, about the importance of sex appeal in a role, but I think it is important, to be honest. I mean, this is you're supposed to have a movie where two teenagers, teenagers, mm-hmm. fall in love with each other from seeing each other across a room.
2: Well, let's go to what is most in recent memory, and you go, like, DiCaprio and Claire Danes and Romeo and Juliet. I mean, that's a movie with a lot of sex appeal that is a musical that is this you know, kind of fever dream of Romeo and Juliet. And I think it it can work. I feel like the studio system took a lot of safe choices uh, back in the day. And it just, who looked good, but not necessarily, I feel like the screen test wasn't perfected. They couldn't find what was missing, you know, from that.
1: Yeah. I mean, listen, I want to be very clear as the person who loves a lot of 90s movies that I am not saying that Romeo plus Juliet, the Baz Luhrmann version of Romeo Mm -hmm. and Juliet, should be on the list instead of West Side Story at all. I'm not saying that. But I am saying I do think those two leads are actually a better cast.
2: I totally agree. I think you could put together a bunch of better leads. At that time, though, I mean, is Tab Hunter exuding sex appeal? I mean, Elvis is. Is Audrey Hepburn giving you sex appeal? I don't know if Audrey Hepburn feels... Right for Maria, either. No,
1: it feels like in both cases, they were casting towards this idea of the virginal innocent, which yeah. I don't think is completely right. I think I think even like the, the 1960s version of Romeo and Juliet with Olivia Hussey. Yes. It got the idea that the Juliet, the innocent young girl in this character, wants to like date a dude. Natalie Wood just doesn't really work for me. She, well, she's just a little bit too Disney.
2: Well, you know, I do feel like that Tony, just to give him some props— once that shirt gets ripped open, like, I feel like there's an energy to him, you know, when he's hiding out in the basement and, you know, in that scene where, you know, Doc, the store owner, comes down and, and tells him that his love has been killed. There's an energy and there's, like, he looks scary to me. Like, when he's going out to find uh, Chino, I'm like, oh, this guy wants to fight. Like, I, I feel like he could fight in that 60s style, like, you know, big wind-up punches and stuff. But I did find that group to be a lot more intimidating after the rumble when they looked a little bit messier they looked a little too clean a little too lords of flat bush uh but maybe i mean again i'm not alive in that time maybe that's what the gangs look like you know maybe i'm picturing something a little bit different you know they don't look intimidating to me but i felt like that transition into night and into the fight felt like oh okay
1: yeah, I mean, I these think, guys
2: can fuck with each other.
1: I think the camera work is doing a lot to make them seem more intimidating, mm-hmm. too. You know, because you've got these low angles, you've got the guys coming right at the camera. They're coming yeah. straight at you. They're looking at you in a lot of cases. You've got these sort of lines on the ceiling when they're in like kind of the warehousey garage that are bright white or bright red. I mean, from from the angle and it's sort of like directed at you. There's a lot of aggression in just where the camera is placed that I think make the guys look a lot bigger and a lot scarier.
2: Yeah. And I think as the movie progresses, going back to what we talked about in the beginning, like the amount of dancing and the way that they dance, you start to view their factor of intimidation by the level of dance, which is helpful because you know, as they're doing the rumble, you you feel it. You just they're they yes, they're not fighting. You don't have to have make it like a Rocky style fight where you're seeing them slug it out. But the intensity in their moves and uh, I'm gonna say staccato nature, even that's a term for singing. Like in their performance is like very jilted that that makes you feel like oh, all right, uh, I am frightened by them, even though they're not doing anything that is technically frightening. If you saw that on the street, you'd like, some dude's dancing.
1: Yeah. I mean, I pulled this clip of their dancing, you know, mm-hmm. because a lot of what I like about their staging is at the beginning, they're almost lifted. You know, they're kind of lifting yeah. off the ground. They're kind of flying. They're taking up a lot of room and a lot of space. They're doing
2: acrobatics on yeah. certain parts like going around like, uh, like monkey bars, like in a circular motion. It's crazy. Yeah.
1: They're doing motions that basically say like, I am here in as much room as I want. This room belongs mm-hmm. to me. And then their movements get a little bit heavier. You know, they're sort of like landing harder, sticking to the ground harder, like stomping. There's like this yeah. definition. And then you know, when stuff starts to get really dark, the moment that I find really fascinating in the choreography is they start almost hitting themselves, dancing against their own bodies, like rejecting their own movements. Right. Like here's a clip when the jets have sort of gotten together. They're upset with the direction the, with the direction that the movie is going. And they can't keep it together. This is right before the be cool number, where they can't be cool because all their emotions are battling their own arms and legs.
3: Cool it, a Rob. Cool it. Cool it. <laughs> go, go, go. Yeah. Yeah. Pow! Wow. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, it's it's almost as if the idea or the reality of fighting is making them less graceful. You know, it's sort of like they can posture and pose and be these tough guys. But when, you know, there is going to be this rumble, they are not as confident. They are more, you know, okay, this is now we have to put actions behind our words. And I don't know. I find that to be interesting.
1: Yeah, it's true. It's like you get this tiny sense of him history. They talk about a group called the Emeralds, mm-hmm. who I'm guessing were Irish. I don't know. Sure, they, I like Emeralds, that. Irish makes sense. But they're gone. They're sort of this like antique history. It's like I don't know. We're watching a Ridley Scott movie, and they're like, "Oh, there <laughs> were these people who used to be here." But something happened. Prequel. Some sort of shift has happened. Yeah, this is definitely a pre. Oh God, don't make the prequel Ridley Scott. Well, I but will say something that there is.
2: I do wanted to see. Like, I wanted a postscript on this movie. Did you want that? Like, I just wanted to know, like. Well what happens next? Does it just continue? I mean, how long until Maria starts dating again? It was only like a two day affair. I mean pretty soon, I think. I I would hope so. Like maybe like three months, two months?
1: Three months is like a good morning time in high school. Like I gave it three months. And now (laughs) it is time but but yeah, like you're as hard as this group sort of seems like they're trying to be, Mm -hmm. the idea that they fall apart so quickly as you're noticing and like pointing out Makes it seem like they actually aren't that used to violence.
2: Yeah, they're a gang of people that are writing graffiti on walls. They're. You stink. Yeah, they're high school kids. They're not adults. You know, like those fights aren't as extreme as something that goes on when you're an adult. Yeah. Um,
1: and it is hard to remember that they're not adults because they look well, so that's adult. That's a tricky thing, yeah. I mean, at least like the girl who's cast in this upcoming one, she definitely looks like a teenager. Absolutely. Ansel Elgort is. Does not, not teen, really, yeah. but like also that's because I've just seen him play a teenager for so long. I know he's not a teenager. Baby I don't face. Maybe he can play it. Te- yeah. Maybe they'll just make it where Tony's like the older cool guy, which also works. Like I was, I,
2: I don't yeah. mind that. Yeah. And then he's not that old. He just didn't go to school or what do you yeah. know? He's like,
1: he's he's like, like a 23 year old dating a 16 year old. You're like, not cool, bro. You're not like the coolest dude on the <laughs> block, but okay.
2: <laughs> Let's talk about the music here. And you mentioned Sondheim was a young guy when he came to this, you know, he didn't even want to do this. Um, he, you know, he was just basically this young kind of upstart. But uh, Hammerstein, who you know was behind uh, all these bigger musicals, said, "You got to do this. This is something that will make your career."
1: He was like a mentor kind
2: yeah. of. Yeah. And this is kind of his did relationship. to do Oklahoma? Yes. Are you going
1: to take back your I, Oklahoma standards? Look, I
2: was in Oklahoma. I like you Oklahoma. You were in Oklahoma? I, or I sang a song from Oklahoma. I did something with Oklahoma. Oh. I can't remember exactly. Had, I
1: actually don't know a thing about Oklahoma, so I don't get to like defend it so Definitely much.
2: saw it on stage on Broadway. Really? I will yeah. say
1: when you go to college in Oklahoma, nobody ever makes you watch Oklahoma. It just I'm, doesn't come up Yeah, I'm once. glad.
2: Yeah. So here is Sondheim talking uh, about his relationship with Leonard Bernstein. He was very fond of changing my lyrics. If I would write something
0: and then he would change them and say, wouldn't this be better? Really? Then then we we would argue. I was 25 years old. You know, he treated me like a kid. He
4: treated me very nice and very well, but it was always that condescension was there. It took a long time before he accepted the fact that I was my own man.
2: Amy, isn't that clip of... Sondheim amazing. I mean, here's this young guy who gets this amazing opportunity uh, to create one of the most legendary musicals of our time. And he has this amazing career, but I don't know that much about him. So I thought today would be fun to bring in a Sondheim Um uh, He is a an amazing uh, writer and director. Also, has a brand new show premiering on Broadway. That's right, at the Winter Garden Theater. It's Beetlejuice the musical. Uh, If you have not seen Gutenberg the musical, his first musical, uh, you gotta go find it. It's, It's just fantastic. He's a writer for shows like Broad City, Wrecked, Silicon Valley, Playing House, all around great guy. Please welcome Anthony King. So the
1: first question I'm gonna ask is just, completely huge because I feel silly. I don't know more about it, but what is the deal with Sondheim? Why is he so beloved? What is his thing?
4: <laughs> I think from, from my point of view, at least he came about like his mentor was Oscar Hammerstein from like Rogers and Hammerstein and, and Rogers and Hammerstein were the first kind of people to take musical theater and say, what if the songs helped tell the story? Okay, And it wasn't just, and it wasn't just a funny play with, songs. Sondheim, I think, took that and went, what if musical, and it was kind of known as musical comedy at, at, at that time, what if you could do shows about adult issues and complex issues and uh, not pander <laughs> to an right. audience uh, and just tell love stories? Uh, and so that's what Sondheim did, collaborating a lot with Harold Prince, who is a director and producer, and, and many different book writers. And a lot of his shows, when they first came out, flopped. But over time, he's become revered as, you know, probably the greatest uh, musical theater writer. I mean, there's people who will cite you on that, but he's definitely one of, he's probably the best lyricist, for sure. I think most would agree. And it's because, like, his
2: lyrics are a little bit more complex, right? As a singer, he's a tough person to kind of master. Am I
4: right in that? Yeah. I mean, there's people who think his music is actually not very good. Okay. Uh, and there's a lot of debate on that because I think his lyrics are, are it's hard to argue how incredibly brilliant they are and what he does in a lyric and how, how poetic it is without feeling po- poetic poetic. Uh, his music can be a little mathematical, mm-hmm. uh, not always the most melodic soaring music. And so some people criticize him for that, but I, I, I mean, company is one of his shows. Assassins is one of his shows that are two of my favorite shows on earth. So I I don't fully agree with that.
1: I mean, I've heard that even he would agree with it on West Side Story, that he thought that his lyrics could have been better because it was one of the earliest things he did for real.
4: Yeah, I was, I mean, I always think about it on West Side. West Side Story was Jerome Robbins, who is, you know, renowned choreographer, director. Uh, You have Leonard Bernstein, (laughs) you know, internationally renowned composer, Arthur Lawrence is writing the book and Leonard Bernstein was writing his own lyrics, but they weren't kind of up to, they weren't very good. Uh, and so they brought in Sonheim's 25 years old and they bring him in to be a lyricist. So it's just an insane amount of pressure and his, and he didn't want to do it cause he wanted to be known as a composer and he was kind of talked into it. Uh, and so he was, he kind of was known as a lyricist because of West side and then gypsy after that, that he only did the lyrics, um, But he, I think his criticism of his lyrics in West Side are, he talks about I Feel Pretty, that song, because he thinks the her character would not use some of the language she does in, in the song, and that it sounds like he's showing off instead of having the character use words that she would use. When she says, like, it's alarming how charming I feel, he's like, that's too quippy for her. I mean, you're coming out of a tradition of, Cole Porter and uh, and these people who are just these witty lyricists and they're showing off all the time and on some level Sondheim was going, yeah I can show off but and and he does in like America those lyrics are completely him just showing off and he said that it's the same thing where it's like uh, Anita probably wouldn't use this this language right. and so. Later in life, he was like, "These are not good. Actually, I did I didn't
2: do a really good job." Am I am I wrong in saying that of all the shows that he's been associated with, that West Side Story though is the most um, singable in a way. You know, or the one that is like in our in our in our minds more. You know, obviously he's done a lot of yeah. big shows, but uh, every one of those songs seems like a hit in a way.
4: Oh yeah, and I think so much of that is Leonard Bernstein. I mean, right. <laughs> because, <laughs> I, he, I think just he comes from that orchestral background, and so these the songs just take off and became standards.
1: Now, I've heard that he wasn't even so much of a musical theater guy in his own influences, that he loved movies more, which kind of makes sense with what you're saying about him being into the psychology of the character, that if you asked him what he really loved, he would have just said Citizen Kane.
4: Yeah, he was. he's a big, uh, especially weird movies, he's also a big puzzle guy, uh, and so... I think for I think for him, in just reading him talk about his own writing, it is about like looking at the psyche of a character as a puzzle and kind of how can you unfold that in lyrics, which are their own puzzle because they have to rhyme. And you need also, in theater, you need the lyrics to hit people in a way that they actually understand what you're saying. It's not like pop music where it can just kind of wash over you and on the third listen, you're like, Oh, that's what they're saying. Uh, You have to get it in one listen. And so it it just puts such a... Parameters on what you write. Well, Anthony, I wanted to ask you a question.
2: You are not only a talented actor and a writer, but you also have experience in this world, in this, in this Broadway world, in this musical world. You know, uh, you created, uh, you know, Gutenberg the musical, and now, right now, uh, Beetlejuice uh, the musical. And what was that like? I mean, you write, you wrote the book. You and Scott Brown, and you both did uh, Gutenberg together as well. But you're now working with, uh, you know, a composer and a lyricist as well. Like what is that collaboration like?
4: It's really fascinating. There's nothing else like it that I know of. And uh, because there is this question at all times of, are you telling this? What's the best way to tell this moment of the story? Is it through book or is it through song? Is it through a, you're in the middle of a song and then someone speaks in the middle of that song. And then what are you're always going back and forth about those things and how, an idea for a song can change the story and how a story leads to the one who needs a song that serves this emotional moment or this plot point. And so it's a really fascinating collaboration between kind of different languages in right. a weird way. Uh, and it's very fluid. It changes a lot because you can have a song that works or a song, and then that changes the story. But then if a song doesn't work, all of a sudden you're kind of back in the minds of figuring out, well, maybe this should not be a song or maybe this scene that isn't working should be a song. And so it's a really uh, tough collaboration, but it's a very, it's really rewarding when it all clicks into place.
2: Are you all, and this is a naive question, but are you all like in a room, like a writer's room, or is it something where it's like you're working independently and then you're watching a show and then you're kind of convening afterwards, like a, a sports game or something like that?
4: Well, we wrote, I mean, we were unique in that I live in LA. Scott Brown, who wrote the book with me, lives in Massachusetts. And Eddie Perfect, who's writing the songs, was in Australia. Oh, wow. So we would all write separately and email and send each other things and then get together and kind of put it all together and feel it on its you know, on its feet. Uh, and then we started working with actors and it would change a lot. And so it's a very long process. I think of it as in movies, you have post-production so that you can shoot things and then fix things in post. Right. In theater, you don't get post-production. And so... All of that perfecting and it has to be exactly this, all has to happen before it hits the stage. Are, th-
1: are there any moments in Beetlejuice that you feel like are kind of a quiet hat
4: tip to Sondheim? <laughs> <laughs> to Sondheim? I oh don't boy. I would never dare to say that we are
0: doing that. Do uh,
4: <laughs> my big fear is that he comes to see the show and hates it. <laughs> That's my biggest fear in the world. I just heard about a show that he left in intermission and I was like, Oh, that would destroy me. Uh, if he, if he left it intermission." I was just telling uh, someone
2: a story the other day, like, um, Back in the day when we were doing shows at UCB, Anthony, and I performed at UCB together. Uh, like one of like the, the big SNL writers, um, like I feel like I want to say it was like Jack Handy came to see a show and then left in the middle of it, and 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 was like quoted as saying, "I'll never go back to that theater again." And I was in, I was one of the many members in that show, and it was like, oh, what like I've chased off one of the best comedy writers of all time from a the theater he won't come back to the theater not even the show yeah,
4: i i started my uh theater career in new york as in, uh, in directing and i assistant directed a show that ran off broadway that that uh people might know i'm not going to name it and Sondheim came to see that show it was a musical and at the end of this big production number the people on stage saw Sondheim like put his drop his head in his hands like ugh. <laughs> And they're like on stage, you know, holding for applause to see the greatest theater writer of all time go. Oh
2: my goodness! It was
4: very demoralizing.
2: (laughs) And and what do you think about? you know, he's still you know active, which is a pretty amazing thing as well. Like, I mean, I mean, he's
4: eighty-nine years old, I think now. Yeah, Um, but he's been developing the show. I don't know what it's when I, I saw a reading of it many years ago. Now it was called Gold. At the time, and I don't know what it's called now. It's been.
2: I think it's like Boonwell. Is that the one that's like the working title now? Yeah, Boonwell, yeah. So. yeah, yeah.
4: And uh, he's been developing it for so long, but it's like theater takes so long to to make, and the fact that he's still that active and trying to get another show up when he's eighty nine is incredible.
1: I mean, Anthony, I want to be a little brutal. Are you willing to play fuck, Mary, kill for us with Stephen Sondheim, Andrew Lloyd Webber, and Lynn Manuel Miranda?
2: <laughs> well, maybe it let's just change the rules of the game a little bit Because I think maybe it would be good if it was Listen for the rest of your life Only listen to once a year Or never listen to again
1: Wow, way to make this safe for life, work, Paul Thank hands you down,
4: Hands <laughs> down Sondheim for the rest of my life uh, I mean, there's so much good music it's, You can, that, that 100% Angelina Weber, oof I'm not, I mean, I liked Phantom I when I was a teenager But <laughs> I don't <laughs> I guess once maybe for him, which means I have to never listen to like lay <laughs> my
3: Once a year. Listen that's
4: to good. 90s rap. And that'll be fine. I'll listen to Biggie. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just turn on schoolhouse rock and Biggie at the same time. And then it'll feel like it. <laughs> oh
2: my gosh. Uh, this has been fascinating talking to you. Thank you for spending some time to tell us a little bit. Tell people where they can find you and, and, uh, and keep track of everything. And
4: yeah, I'm on Twitter, the Anthony King, uh, Beetlejuice is opening on Broadway. Previews start, I don't know when it's coming out, but March 28th. And it opens April 25th on Broadway at the Winter Garden Theater.
2: How does that feel for you knowing that you have the, I mean, it's like, are you nervous at all now? What what are you feeling leading up to this? I know it's previewed in different places, but you know, Winter Garden Theater, home of cats.
4: Uh, (laughs) Home of cats. Home of Mamma Mia. It is, uh, it's, surreal, because I never as could have ever thought I would have a Broadway show. Uh, but also, yeah, incredibly nerve-wracking, because theater is one of the few places where reviews really matter. Right. And so there's going to be an opening night and then an opening night party, and at that party, reviews will come out, and it could be a terrible night. <laughs> oh.
2: It's funny that you say that, it because it's, it, you're right. I guess it's still where there are few critics. It's not like Rotten Tomatoes. You're not getting 100 critics from all different walks right. of life. It's, it's a very... Finite group. Oh wow. Well, I'm yeah. sure I mean the
4: solace you take is that Wicked, which is uh has made billions of dollars, got terrible reviews. Oh okay. So, <laughs> yeah,
2: always... Wow, that's crazy that Wicked <laughs> wow, that's really fascinating. Well, Anthony, a pleasure talking to you and uh thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony. I cannot wait to see Beetlejuice. Maybe we could go see it together. We'll go to New York and we'll go support Anthony.
1: Um and can we get a pretzel?
2: I mean, of course. Okay. Amy, I'm going to ask you a personal question.
1: Oh, ask away.
2: You're dating right now, right? Uh-huh. Do you like the outfits that your man is wearing? I mean, truthfully, or does he have a closet full of great outfits, or does he have to go out and find something specific when he wants to look good?
1: I am insatiable. I want as many good outfits as possible.
2: Exactly. And that's the thing. It's hard because I think... As a man, you want to look good, you want to look stylish, but you may not have the finances to have uh, a, an army of suits in your closet for every event. And this is where Black Tux comes in, all right? Black Tux is this amazing website where you can rent designer suits and tuxedos that you will love that will not cost you a fortune, this all right? This is
1: because I'm picky, but I want my man to spend his
2: money on me. Exactly, that is what I'm talking about, all right? But the benefit of black tux is you wear it once and you send it back so you can keep on refreshing your wardrobe time and time again for, like, literally I think a quarter of the price of what it would cost to even get a suit. It probably even less than a quarter of a price. I mean, Black Tux is an easy online ordering process that brings your suit or tuxedo straight to you. You pick a style and they have cool styles, not just like simple. It's not like you're walking into Sears and getting a suit. This is designer level stuff. It's fun stuff. It's sexy stuff. It's good stuff. You can try it on at home. You go like, do I like this? It looked good online, but now I don't like it here. You send it back. If you don't, if you do, you say it's good. They hold on to it. All right, And then they ship it to you two weeks before your event or your wedding or whatever you do. You check it out one last time. You wear it. Everyone's like, oh, damn, who's that guy in that amazing suit? Or like, who's that woman in an amazing suit? And you leave feeling good about yourself, but you didn't spend a fortune And you'll realize why 5,000 people have given this five-star reviews. You won't find a better rental experience or designs like this anywhere else but on the Black Tux. And you know what? If you wanna even look around, there are Black Tux showrooms all over the country. We can do your fit right there. It's so easy. Um, Black Tux, honestly, is the shit. That was really gonna be their... Tagline, but I guess somebody shot it down in marketing. Black Tux is the shit. Um, rent your suit or tuxedo at BlackTux.com and enjoy twenty dollars off with your code at Unspooled. That's twenty dollars off with your code Unspooled. To spell it, Unspooled. U N S P O O L E D. That's BlackTux.com. Code Unspooled for twenty dollars off your purchase.
1: Like, I, I, Sondheim had to be good to get this job at 25. Right. He had to have been He special. was the young
2: upstart that people were interested in, but he didn't have any cachet.
1: I also think that's interesting because to me, like, the, the original Romeo and Juliet is so much just about how parents don't understand. Yeah. It's about the, the older generation doesn't remember what it's like to be young and to be very serious about the thing that you want in life. And here, it's, the adults aren't really a factor.
2: No, it, that's what I love about it. it. Again, going back to the idea of adaptation. What a brilliant adaptation of uh, of a classic like Romeo and Juliet is a classic story, but it puts a new spin on it. It's just about the kids. The parents aren't getting involved. The parents aren't saying don't do it. You know, we have a brother. You have you have social mores that are telling you not to fall in love, but. Yes, it's not going deep into, you know, cultural and race issues, but it's touching on the base of them, which is I don't even go over there because we just don't do that. You know, and these two people ultimately are asking the question, well, why don't we do that? And, you know, it's not going to solve anything, but to show this side and to show them equally, there's no villain. You know, the Jets and the Sharks, there's no good or bad on either side of it.
1: Yeah, I mean, you get glimmers of sort of a build-the-wall attitude. Yes. I I would say from the Jets, you know. And by the way, if we're talking about... But Tony
2: did kill someone. I mean, Tony is out of rage. Tony kills one of them. Like, our hero kills somebody. It's true. Out of pure anger. This is a guy who's like, hey, guys, let's not fight. Then two seconds in, he's murdering, straight-up murdering a dude. He's like, bam, take that. Not like the level head does not prevail. And I like that idea that they're... They're showing both sides are to blame.
1: Although, when you hear the Jets talk, you know, about the Sharks, they're basically Mm -hmm. like, these dudes are coming into our hood. I mean, because it is an Mm -hmm. immigration story, too. Right, of course. These people have shown up in their neighborhood.
4: We fought hard for this turf, and we ain't just going to give it up. (laughs) The Emeralds claimed it, we shot them out. The Hawks, remember, they try to take it away. We knock them down the cellar. Yeah,
3: but these P.R.s are different. They, they, multiply. they keep coming. Like cockroaches. Close the windows. Shut the door. They're eating all the food. They're eating all the air. are oh, oh. I'm drooling in too And you heard what that Lieutenant Schrank said, huh? We got to make nice with them Puerto Ricans or else. We got to let them move in right under our noses and take it all away from us or else. No, no, no. no. you yeah. damn right, No.
1: It is so weird watching somebody with so much fake tanner also oh. have this argument.
2: Yeah, it's hilarious to see a guy who's not playing Puerto Rican have just as much uh, brown makeup on as the people who are playing Puerto Rican.
1: But what is interesting, too, is like they make a reference to the cops in that scene. And when it is these two young people against the cops, these two people, these groups team up against the cops.
0: Right. You hoodlums don't on these streets. And I've had all the rough house I'm going to put up with around here. You want to kill each other? Kill each other. But you ain't going to do it at my beat. Are there any questions? Yes, sir. Would you mind translating that into Spanish?
1: (laughs) (laughs) And then everybody laughs at the cops. Because you know what? The universality here is like, even if we hate each other, we hate the cops more.
2: This movie kind of combines social commentary, comedy, and this amazing music, and it all comes together, in my opinion, in the America song, because then we see the point of view of the Puerto Rican gang and their experiences in America, and this back and forth is kind of just so wonderful.
3: Buying a credit is so nice. One look get us and they charge twice. Have my own washing machine. What will you have though to keep clean? Mm-hmm. Skyscrapers bloom in, America. in America. Industry boom in, America. Room in,
0: a room in America.
2: I mean, it's a great commentary and a and I think, you know, again, for going back to this idea at this time to show, like, there's two sides of the story. There's two perspectives, and even between the men and the women. On the same side, they're experiencing America, and you you see how they are feeling in this world.
1: Well, yeah, it's interesting that it goes down to this gender divide. Like, the women are like, it's great, there's more opportunity, we can buy more things, and the men all see the downsides. We're crowded, everybody looks at us with suspicion, and it's the men who are in the gang. You know, you almost sense in this number that there's something in the way they're being treated here in America— as men, as men trying to support like their families and trying to get ahead, that kind of shunts them into the gang. Whereas the women are finding different ways to make money, different ways to fit into the community. They're figuring out how to belong better.
2: Well, women are always smarter, right? I mean, come on, Amy.
1: Well, I mean, Rita Moreno is smarter than everybody in this movie, even if she's got a touch of, <laughs>
2: of bloodlust herself. These numbers, they all kind of pop in and, and, and do a great job, obviously, musicals, of informing the characters and what's going on. And I... And at first glance, I thought, "Wow, after intermission, this movie does have an intermission, they come back on a very small number again it it this movie kind of bucks against all traditions of a Broadway musical. It opens ominously. The second act doesn't explode onto the screen. it It's this story about love and and you know it's like you can't tell your heart what's right or what's wrong. and you know, and while that's a very simple idea, it uh it really thematically, the opening of the second act is really kind of wonderful in getting you in to the headspace of these two characters because that's going to bring you to the end of the film and you have to care that's kind of wedding scene where they're in the, the dress shop and they're getting together singing about their love you need that kind of a low-key scene to make the end pay off because it is kind of this bittersweet moment and you don't know that they're going to die but or one of them is going to die but it's uh I think this movie does a great job of just kind of seeing the inner psyche of these characters.
1: Yeah, especially when it does that, like, pan to the colorful window, the Mondrian-esque yeah. sort of look, because that means they're pony.
2: <laughs> well, let's talk about the colors in this. You know, I was going to say this is like a Technicolor film, uh, but I didn't see it labeled as that. But the colors here are so bright, and I thought a lot of it was sets. But even when you look out in New York City, the color of the buildings are very clean like blue and yellow it's i think that's probably just great cinematography but it's such a conscious choice
1: well it's, yeah it's interesting that you say that because i kept thinking how much it looks like modern art do you know yes what I mean? how no much you're a hundred percent of like the 50s and the 60s i kept thinking about like mondrian and i kept thinking about like bright abstract colors that's
2: like when you see these freeze frames from the film it's like this looks like a painting. Everything looks like a painting.
1: Yeah, it feels very much of its moment in the art scene. And then, of course, like the colors get dimmer and dimmer and dimmer the more it goes on until you have like Maria who starts off the film in a white dress, wanting to wear a red dress, then wearing a red dress, and then putting on this black veil.
2: Oh, the black veil at the end was such a beautiful touch. It's I will, so, yeah. It's great.
1: She is good in that very last scene.
2: That's her real acting scene. I mean, that's. I mean, look, look like, we're also talking about, and I will say this to put out there, Uh, According to the director, um, the two leads did not get along. Like, uh, (laughs) Natalie Wood apparently had a shit list, and her love interest, the guy who played Tony, was the number one on that list. So, don't you even have more respect for her that she didn't even care for this guy? And I think their scenes together are really... Touching and wonderful. I love when he comes to her and tells her that he killed her brother. I mean, and then she gets over that in a way that I feel like is believable. Like he tells her, honestly, what happened and what went on. It's a movie where I feel like there isn't that much mistaken communication, which is always a pet peeve. Like he's like, no, I need you to know I killed him. I'm at fault. I'm not lying. I mean, only there's only one miscommunication, but it's not even uh, full, you know, it." it it could have been the
1: Anita Yes, yeah, well, sorry. yeah, and I, yeah, you're right, and like that isn't even a miscommunication. It's because in a way, like Anita has been treated so badly that out of spite, she's like, "Screw him. He doesn't get to know." She's
2: saying, "No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna save." Like this is causing only problems. My, my boyfriend was killed. I was almost raped. Enough. Although the fact that she could pull off that, <laughs> Marie would be dead for more than I don't know. Two days would be very hard. They live in blocks away from each other.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's not even that that much of a miscommunication. It's more just like Marita Moreno, she shows up to deliver this message kind of against her will a bit, but because she loves Maria so much, she's going to let Tony know what's up. And then everybody treats her so horribly. There is that like kind of florid, terrible, horrible uh, rape that yeah. happens or attempted rape that happens. By the way,
2: can I just say like when Doc comes in catching them in the middle of this attempted rape, he's like, ah. Shame on you, kids. Like, it was the most lenient uh, reprimand for attempted rape. It was like, uh, oh, when do you kids stop? You make this world lousy. Like, it's like it's exactly. a very, like, I'm like, come on, man. Let's get a little bit more uh, worked up here.
1: She's justified in being like, you know what? I'm just going to end this relationship between these two people right now.
2: Absolutely. You don't want your boyfriend's sister associating with these mongrels. I mean, they clearly this group, from what we see are way worse than the sharks.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's something sort of tragic in that you've seen Anita stick up for America and say things are okay here. and People don't treat us that bad. We can make it work. So she is justified in this, even though she does go a
2: little bit far. So we've talked about this from a bunch of different angles. I mean, it's worthy just to mention some elements about production. I mean, you know, these guys are doing amazing dance moves so much so that their their jeans needed to be dyed and redyed and distressed using special elastic thread to allow for the severity of the choreography you know uh the the actors wore over 200 pairs of shoes applied over 100 pounds of makeup and split 27 pairs of pants um and performed in 30 different recording sessions for this film i mean this is like this movie is just you know when we hear about Ginger Rogers, you know, bleeding in heels. These characters also did it. I mean, you know, there's shin splints galore in this movie because they're landing on hard concrete. And I think one of the things I didn't realize was how much actual locations there were in this film. This movie was shot in New York and they actually had to keep gangs away from their shooting area. Uh, It was a very intense shoot.
1: Yeah, I mean, Jerome Robbins is pretty brutal, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Like the people who survived... Shooting his musical, talk about like how everybody broke a toe or a foot. Somebody, I think, had like a tooth burst through their mouth. Like Jerome Robbins... Does not sound like he was the most pleasant person to work with. He he sounds like he came a little bit more out of like the brutal Kubrickian tradition of directing people's performances to make them have great work and the pros and cons that come with that. Well,
2: I mean, he actually kept the Jets and the Sharks separated in their Broadway show and they actually brought that to the film. So there was a real rivalry between these gangs and I don't think it was extreme, but they would play practical jokes on each other. And you could see that in these sequences, they wanted to kind of get at each other.
1: Yeah, and we should probably also admit that, like, Jerome Robbins wound up getting fired. Uh, Really? Yeah, totally. Like, he—basically, the way they divided up the direction of the movie was that um, Robert Weiss took most of the dramatic scenes. Right. And that Jerome Robbins took the dance sequences. So, he directed, like, the prologue, and he directed the American number, he directed the cool number, he directed the something is coming number, and then he got fired because he was— A, being really expensive, like he was like Mm -hmm. doing shot after shot after shot. He was a perfectionist. He wanted it absolutely perfect. Well,
2: yeah, George Chikara said like when he came on set, the entire tenor changed because it was like, oh, no fucking around now. We have to do this and do this so well. I mean, he was the Fred Astaire who was not on screen, you know?
1: Exactly. And because he's not doing the dancing and making it perfect himself, he's not the one controlling him practicing. Like when he goes home at night. He was making these people do it, and he was spending a lot of money, and he wound up getting fired. Um, But a lot of where he took a lot of the dance numbers from, it's interesting because sometimes I've gone back and forth on this a little bit. I'm like, to me, what is weird is that so much of what happens in here with, like, the music and the references and the numbers is not really Puerto Rican. You know
2: what I mean? Right.
1: It's, like, coming a lot from, like, Mexican tradition. There's a lot of bullfighting, and I'm like, there's not really a Right, I, there's like I mean I I when the it's time, more
2: like Latin American music like through a filter. It's sort of like elements of these things. You know, yeah. I, I, the same the same way you would argue like a shofar is not connecting to a group that is not necessarily Jewish either. It's sort of like just taking interesting musical elements and saying this is that and this is this. You know, they just they made choices though.
1: Exactly. So I'm not going to be like you're canceled because you can't tell the difference. Because right. also like they I think they knew what they were doing for sure. I mean, yeah. Leonard Bernstein his wife was Chilean. So I'm sure he knows a lot about like the different sort of musicality traditions. I'm sure his wife at one point was like bullfighting. What are you doing? Yeah. Um but I mean there is like some interesting But it stuff.
2: works. I mean it it, works. it creates like this energy. The music is always in this point where you don't know exactly where it's going. You know, it's, I mean, that's a trick of the Sondheim lyric too. It's sort of this very interestingly worded song and and you can't get ahead of it. And I think that, you know, that music kind of matches that, uh, that style.
1: Yeah. And I think it makes a little bit of sense when the Jets are say like making fun of the Sharks because the Jets can be racist idiots. Mm -hmm. Don't totally have it clear. Yeah. Of course. Um, you know, a lot of like the kind of dance stuff that they do, like the da dun 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 I mean, that's coming out of like a dance tradition called like wapangos. Okay. And, and I was looking for like fun clips to sort of demonstrate what a wapangos beat was, but like the majority that I saw were just people being like, you basically dance as though you are stomping cockroaches. Or there was one that was like, You basically dance like you're a nerd playing dance dance revolution. So just picture oh, that. Wow. But that's like a lot of where the stomping comes from. Interesting. But yeah, I mean, it is such a mishmash, which in a way is America.
2: Which leads me to that question. How could anyone dislike this movie, Amy? Well, you can if your name is dun 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 dun
1: dun 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 the infamous Pauline Kale.
2: Oh, my (laughs) goodness. How does this? Oh, Pauline, really? What does she say?
1: All right. Pauline Kale has a lot to say. I will read some of the highlights. Here we go. Pauline Kael starts by saying, you'll notice that nobody says that West Side Story is a good movie. They say it's great. They accept the terms on which it is presented. She's kind of talking about it as though it comes in like a la-la land, like, ta-da, you must bow down to me. She says that West Side Story begins with a blast of stereophonic music that had me clutching my head. Everything about it is supposed to stun you with its newness, its size. And when you criticize Bernstein, people jump in outrage as though you were demeaning Moses. So she's sort of saying, like, y'all let the hype get too big on this.
2: Wow. Well, I don't think so, Amy. If it's 2019 and this is still viewed as one of the best movie musicals, I don't think the hype could continue or sustain for 40-plus years.
1: I mean, that's fair. But when it is 1961, you might wonder if the hype's a little overblown. Okay. Like, I might— I, But, if, but if at that point, like but a now— a musical coming out this year. I, I can imagine going into it with a pocket full of salt, being like— We shall see.
2: Well, if in 50 years people are still talking about Hamilton, then the hype was right. Because when does it stop? The hype has to stop at a certain point. I continue, Pauline. Fair
1: enough. So Pauline says Consider the feat. First, you take Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet and remove all that cumbersome poetry. Then, you make the Montagues and Capulets you modern. You
2: only replace it with Stephen Sondheim's poetic lyrics. Go uh, ahead. She's
1: got some stuff to say on that. Uh, by turning the Montagues and Capulets into rival street gangs of native-born and Puerto Ricans. You get rid of the parents, of course. America is a young country, and who wants to be bothered by the squabbles of older people? Then, she says, kind of making fun of the the simplicity of the lyrics, When Tony stabs Maria's brother and your mind fills in with, Oh, I am fortune's fool. The expensive screenwriters come up with a brilliant exclamation for him.
2: Maria! He cries. Oh, this is real (laughs) shit. Yes, I'm just listening. I'm not even commenting. I'm
1: halfway through the
2: highlights. Oh boy.
1: The irony of this hyped-up slam-bang production is that those involved apparently don't really believe that beauty and romance can be expressed in modern rhythms, because whenever their Romeo and Juliet enter the scene. The dialogue becomes painfully old-fashioned and mawkish. The dancing turns to simpering, sickly, romantic ballet. And the sugary old stars hover in the sky. And then she says, how can so many critics have fallen for all of this frenzied hokum?
2: But don't you think what she's missing is she's kind of longing for why it's not exactly like what she expected it to be, but then railing against it for what it's doing that is so different?
1: I do think she's having a really hard time placing it as something of the now that maybe it just it's hard to know what now is in the now.
2: Absolutely. I think that a lot of things I, I know that, you know, I always go back to it's a personal thing. But when I saw Welcome to the Dollhouse, I was like, this is weird. This is not good. I don't like this movie. And then I saw it. When I went to college, and I was like, "This movie is fantastic." It's sort of like the idea of like where you are as a person dictates a lot of, and where culture is. You know, these first movies that come out, and and oftentimes they kind of break a barrier. And like we said, Bonnie and Clyde it opened the door for dozens, and and even what we're in watching now, films. You know, it's
1: true. I mean, I think she's basically being like, "This movie is trying too hard," because when she talks about the ballerina gangs, Mm -hmm. she says they are. About as human as the munchkins in The Wizard of Oz. Fuck
2: that. It's a musical. <laughs> you got to give it up for a musical.
1: And then she goes into something I really agree with. Mm. She says, she refers to clever little Natalie Wood. Oh, there you go. Basically, she talks about Natalie Wood the way I talk about Natalie Portman. So okay. I get it. She says. Wow. She calls Natalie
2: Wood a quote. It's mich- a Natalie podcast. That's our shirt. I no mean, more Natalies. Are you to say here on the podcast, you're not going to take the Natalie Portman masterclass? The new released Natalie Portman masterclass on the Masterclass app? I I mean I already signed <laughs> up for it.
1: <gasps> I could talk forever, but I I let me just let me just finish yeah, it out. Sorry. Kyle. Okay, let me finish finish out some kale. Uh, she refers to Natalie Wood, probably in the way she call Natalie Portman. She calls her, quote, a machine tooled Hollywood ingenue. Wow. And says that she is the newly constructed love goddess, so perfectly banal that she destroys all thoughts, thoughts of love.
2: Okay quick question for you uh-huh. okay okay Judy Garland Natalie Wood differences
1: I think Judy Garland has wanted to hit it before
2: hmm all right okay. I accept that answer <laughs> <laughs> but I don't see much of a difference really yeah I don't see much of a difference between you know I think she's like oh gosh sir you know like I like I, I feel like she's a fairy oh my and I, I think that Natalie Wood plays it a little bit more real
1: huh who makes a better teenager I would say that I do believe that, uh... No, You're no,
2: coming to the dark side. You're coming to the dark side. <laughs> I can feel it, Amy.
1: Nope. No, 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 no. You no, you think, you I think...
2: think okay. I think Judy Garland makes a better teenager, for wow. sure. okay. Uh, okay. Oh, gosh. That's a great answer, Amy. <laughs>
3: <laughs> wow, and that's the way that she—that like, I mean, evil, right evil witch right now. I'm evil wish. No,
2: I, mean, I just think, but that's like that was her <laughs> teenager. Like, oh boy, a boy. I mean, and and by the way, I love that performance. I'm just saying, it's just like it's very affected. If you don't think it's affected, oh. I don't think that Natalie Wood is affected.
3: No, you don't. Please
1: lower my bodice. One inch. <laughs> lower my buttis. Oh, hello. The really? podcast just devolves
2: oh. into us doing <laughs> shitty impressions of young ingenues. Finally, we have done it. We have done it. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just finish out Polly yes. and Kale, for the love still. of God. Okay. She's still
1: going on. Polly and Kale says, if there's anything great in the American musical tradition, and I think that there is, It is in the light satire, the high spirits, the giddy romance, the low comedy, and the unpretentiousness and stylish dancing of men like Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly. She says there is more beauty there and a lot more humanity than in all of this jet-propelled ballet.
2: There we go. Don't like modern dance, Pauline Kael said it first. I mean, really, what she's railing against is just new dancing. It would be like, you know, I'd love to see a review for Breakin' 2, Electric Boogaloo.
1: I think what she's saying is, here's this movie that's coming in like all hot, like, yo, I'm the raw story of the streets. And she's like, really?
2: Let me read her review of American in Paris and see how down she is on that dancing, which is very similar to the dancing here. I'm sure she loves it. You're real bitter for a person who just saw this movie. I know, I really am. (laughs) Uh, You know, uh, before I ask the question that everyone wants to know about The Simpsons, I do want to say uh, one thing. When the movie first starts, you see these very prominent Al Wood posters in the background. It's like Al Wood is running for, um, you know, some sort of uh, elected official position. And I thought, oh, is this going to be a character in the film? Is this going to be like, he wants to clean up the streets? No. That's oh, what
1: is my dad?
2: Yeah, he's just I a he uh, Natalie Wood's dad. No, he's just a production designer, the guy who made the posters, like made a, a reference to himself very prominently displayed. So much so that to a first time watcher, I was like, "Oh, this is gonna be a this is gonna be like Harvey Dent and and uh, and Batman. It's gonna this is gonna play into something." Nope, yeah. just West a producer. West Side wood. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> um, all right, so Amy, my second question for you: uh-huh. uh, Is there a Simpsons?
1: Is there ever? I decided to pick a musical number. Great. Uh, This is from a Simpsons episode where Homer becomes a food critic. And he is discovered at the buffet eating a bunch of food. And somebody says, who's that guy who seems to love food? Who wants to sing a song about it?
3: Who are you and why are you ruining my retirement party? I'll have you know, I wandered off from the tour. Well, at least you like the food. Oh, I like food all right. I like pizza. I like bagels. I like hot dogs with mustard and beef. I get the picture. I'll eat eggplant. I could even eat a baby deer. La, 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 la. Who's a baby deer on the lawn? Enough there? already. Sorry. <laughs> uh, um,
2: this movie, besides being a huge box office hit, uh, Kind of cleans up at the Academy Awards. Um, You get an Academy Award for Best Picture, uh, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, which is color, which we're talking about, uh, Best Costume Design, Best Film Editing, Best Music, and Best Sound. Wow, are you
1: saying they didn't get one for Best Actress? I'm so surprised. Oh,
2: wow. But they did. The only one they missed out on was Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay, which is interesting, and I don't disagree with that. I feel like every one of these departments that won, it's, it makes sense. I mean, this movie is big and bold and, and beautiful. It makes me a little bit worried about the Steven Spielberg adaptation of it because the way that we were talking about it earlier, if they are really going to get into the specifics of culture at that time... Can you keep the lightness of that music? Does the music change? I don't know. I, I, I You know, it remains to be seen. And I, I think it's definitely open for another reinterpretation. I'll be very excited to see how that plays out. Just from a point of view of how do you do something that has to be very much the same, but is going to be something that is incredibly different.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm interested, like... It's interesting. It doesn't feel like it's a Steven Spielberg story to tell. I'm like, what are you going to add to this guy who mm. grew up in the suburbs of Arizona? Right. Yeah, you know, I'm sort of surprised. It feels like, like if
2: Lin, uh manuel Miranda was like doing it, would you say like, I would want to see that?
1: If, if Lin-Manuel I mean, Man Lin kind of Miranda like, and, had not done Mary Poppins, I would be like very interested. <laughs> but now I'm on the fence.
2: Yeah, you know, I mean, like, you know, he did do, you know, like In the Heights. And I just think that there's a voice there that... I would like that story to be told maybe from that perspective a little bit more. And when I look at Tony Kushner and Steven Spielberg, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. It's it's a point of view that is, I would argue, coming at least from the same direction that this film was coming from.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think if there was a new West Side Story, it wouldn't sound like West Side Story. So I don't know how you make it sound relevant and old. You're right. It's a difficult needle to thread.
2: And can you... I mean, can you get those songs out of your head? Like I said, this is a movie I've never seen, but yet I knew all the songs. All the songs felt familiar. So a new take on them, that's always a tricky thing. You know, the last time I could think of a great version of that is uh, the Sean Penn movie, I Am Sam, where they did all Beatles covers. And Beatles covers seem to be the only kind of, you know, uh, place where artists can kind of Take and adapt and and kind of blow it out because I think the the rudimentary elements of the songs are kind of rich and maybe this has the same I don't know the same way to kind of be reinterpreted because Steven Spielberg says all of your classic hits are going to be in there the whole thing
1: yeah I mean we shall, I, we shall see 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 should we do like a Minnesota when new the yes new we will I'm,
2: we will tackle that yeah. in about a year we'll be a, yeah. about close to when this is all wrapping up and we will tackle West Side Story.
1: Oh my God, that means we should do one on Sunset Boulevard. What is happening? They're just remaking I know, Did you really. Did know that Hollywood remakes a lot of things?
2: I mean, look, it happens all the time. Yeah. Did you know that E.T. was a remake of Mac and Me? <laughs> uh, Amy, this movie started at as 41 on the AFI list and went down to 51.
1: Spielberg's like, just, just put mine up there. Just give me a sixth film.
2: Um, it's number two on AFI's greatest movie musicals list, which I think is interesting. Uh, number one being Singing in the Rain. So let's look at it in that context. Um, first of all, do you think 51 is about right? I'm at peace with it. I am too. It's directly in the center Um, I
1: mean, I do feel like rewatching this, I just see so much of the influence. Like, again, maybe it's because of like the headspace we've been at. mm -hmm. But when you have, you know, the tomboy girl in the Jets gang show up, I'm like, oh, that's where Stallone subconsciously probably got that girl in Rocky. You know, like everything seems to be recycled and recycled. I I can see
2: Clockwork Orange influences on this. Yeah, totally. Or I can see influences in Clockwork Orange from this film.
1: I mean, yeah. I mean, you could even say I'm going to make a a bit of a stretch, but even the ending of this, when Tony gets taken out by all of the people, yeah, uh, it's Gladiator. I mean,
2: right. Everything
1: yes. in here is getting like taken and absorbed. I think even in ways that aren't even direct homages. Honestly, I think no. it's just in the DNA of film culture.
2: Michael Bay's favorite movie is West Side Story. It is not. It is. It is. Which not. is amazing, and I love that idea that, like, you know, there may be something in Transformers that is from West Side Story. I'm sure there is because. Whenever a filmmaker loves a film, they're, they're always putting something in or trying to recreate something. And
1: Yeah, I mean, that shot of, like, Shia LaBeouf's girlfriend carrying a stuffed bunny as the camera focuses on her ass, totally West Side <laughs>
2: um, So, Amy, just talk about this in one other way. We both agree it's on the list. We're both okay with 50. But then, Singing in the Rain, number five on the list. Number five on the AFI list. So, we're going, Singing in the Rain is the fifth best film, according to AFI. And this is the 51st. And I think to myself, I go, wow, I wonder if in the Rain is up there because it is about Hollywood, a little bit about the system itself, and it's paying off on the expectations of what a musical is. I, I don't know. I, I, I am curious about that. Like when I look at these two films back to back, and again, I'm a neophyte and seeing, you know, this one for the first time, I do think that this movie is maybe more important than Singing in the Rain for exactly what we talked about. Um, I think that Singing Rain is also amazing, but I, I, I am a little bit upset with that disparity of 5 and 51.
1: That's interesting. I mean, I do think that, yeah, the dance styles are so different in that West Side Story is more about shapes and mm-hmm. abstraction. And, you know, yeah, Singing in the Rain is more about, like, individual performance, kind of like you were pointing out. I do wonder, maybe it gets, like, a Gene Kelly bounce. Right. If they're like, well, we got to have a really good Gene Kelly in here. Let's give it to this one.
2: Well, picture me as an AFI voter. I've definitely seen Sing in the Rain. I have not seen West Side Story. And I think that there's a, and I think there's a weight to West Side Story or a corniness to West Side Story that I've always associated with it with not really knowing the film at all.
1: I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if West Side Story gets a ding because it is so derivative of Romeo and Juliet. It's hard right. to say that it wrote this, you know, it's well, hard to say that it came up with this plot.
2: Well, you know what? We've been doing a lot of these polls online. Let's continue the polling and ask you, the listener, what you think. Do you think that West Side Story is a better musical than Singing in the Rain or not? We'll have you vote online. You can check it out there. I'm curious. I bet you Singing in the Rain wins, but I would hope that people would think before they just answer.
1: It could also get the joy bomb factor. Like yeah. Singing in the Rain is just always so fun to
2: watch. Exactly. I would put on Singing in the Rain right now and- same with Wizard of Oz. This, I would definitely watch again, but it's not like, it's not a happy movie. I mean, look, there's another thing. It's, it's not happy. It's, it's sad. But look, number one is Citizen Kane, and that's not a happy movie either. So who knows? Amy, should we roll the die?
1: I believe that we should. kahedron, so, roll that. Here we go. Here we go. Boom. Wow.
2: Moving around, moving around, moving around. What accord, do we have? We have 11. Ooh, 11. That is, uh-oh. City Lights, our first Chaplin movie. We got a Chaplin on the table. Very excited about that. Um, I'm, again, not super familiar with Chaplin as much as I wasn't familiar with uh, Buster Keaton. You know, these kind of artists, I understand who they are culturally, but I have never really sat down to watch one of these films.
1: Well, then maybe this is a good candidate for a what is City Lights about challenge oh. for the listeners and for you, Paul.
2: I like it. All right, perfect. Um Everybody, go get your pencils, write down what you think it's about before you watch the movie, and then call us and tell us. I already have an idea. Should I tell you what I think it is right now? I think it's about um, a country bumpkin, a hick, a real big old hick, who uh, moves to the city and then becomes like a real a-hole. That is my, <laughs> like, you know, he, like, he gets like he gets suckered into the glitz and glamour of the city. The, the city lights eat him up. Anyway, uh, you give me a call. You give Amy a call. You tell us what you think it's about. Am I right? I think I am. 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. Let us know what you think City Lights is about.
1: All right. I can't wait to hear this. And, Paul, well, we're going to talk about it next week. <sighs>
2: Amy, today's show is brought to you by Mubi. Movie is the experience that you want from a streaming provider. Why? Because they curate films to make you appear smarter. These are not the films that you normally find on a different service. These are curated and put together by thoughtful film professionals, okay?
1: They're amazing. If you are a movie person now, and if you're not, you should be one now, you will know that they have things in there like the acting debut of Bjork in a movie called The Juniper Tree. Did
2: Whoa, you I thought she... That? No, I didn't know. I thought that was Dancer in the Dark was her first movie. Movie, man! Well, we talked about this earlier in the show. You know, uh, Kazuro Soda, who is this amazing documentary filmmaker, um, his approach is his self-devised Ten Commandments of observational filmmaking. And the result are these documentaries that are unpretentious, but complex and freeform, yet beautiful. Uh, and they honor and respect their subject. It's a, it's a really unique way. I mean, I I'm, I love a doc and he kind of pulls you in, in a way that I think is incredibly unexpected and different. And now when you go out to dinner, you can say like, oh, did you guys see the latest uh, Kazuro Soda film? Like, no, I didn't see it. Oh, you didn't see uh, it on Mubi? Oh, you're a piece of shit and I'm the fucking best. <laughs> so don't be a piece of shit. Uh, try Mubi for free for 30 days. That's MUBI.com slash unspooled for a whole month of great cinema for free. That's mubi.com slash unspooled. Try it. See it. You like films. You're gonna love Mubi.
4: Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better, too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes.
2: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks...